Hello everyone and welcome back to a new episode of Music Works. Today we have two special guests, Cherise Beaumont and Roger Wilson from Black Lives in Music. You may remember Roger from season three, episode three of this podcast. He is now the managing director of Black Lives in Music and today is joined by Cherise, CEO of Black Lives in Music. In this episode, we will discuss what has happened with Black Lives in Music since the last time we spoke over a year ago and the importance of combating racism and uniting organisations and musicians to create a truly inclusive and diverse music industry. We will head over to the Music Works studio where Sharice and Roger are waiting, but first, here is an advert from our sponsor. Music Works is sponsored by the Musicians' Union. I'm a member of the Musicians' Union. It's the trade union for musicians living and or working in the UK, and it's a community of 32,000 members working to protect musicians' rights and campaigning for a fairer industry, as well as campaigning to fix streaming and keep musicians working in the EU post-Brexit the union collectively bargains for musicians working in orchestras and theatres and sets minimum recommended rates for freelance musicians working in other sectors. Its expert staff provide contract advice, legal advice and assistance and a range of benefits and services to help musicians in every aspect of their work. Be part of something bigger and get the recognition you deserve. Join now at the MU.org. Lovely. Roger and Cherise, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Katie. It's great to be here. Thank you. Great. Yeah, to thanks for having us. Not at all. I'm very excited to have this conversation. So we have here today Roger Wilson, Managing Director, and Cherise Beaumont, CEO of Black Lives in Music. Um, last spoke to Roger on this podcast uh, very shortly after Black Lives in Music was formed back in 2021. Uh, for anyone who wants to hear that, it was released on the 30th of April 21, and it's uh, season three, episode three, and that was our our conversation about um, the beginning of Black Lives in Music. Um, now we are about just over a year beyond that, and so it's a perfect opportunity to um, to speak to both of you and hear about what's been going on over the last year and a bit. So what has happened? <laughs> <laughs> what has the first year of running Black Lives in Music been like? Well, I'm going to start off and I'm just going to say um, it, it's it's now well over a year for us. Um, mm -hmm. I think when we first started talking um, on the podcast, we were about six weeks, maybe two months after our initial official launch. But we'd actually been um, up and running as an organization probably about seven, eight months before that. Okay. And then obviously there's the planning and there's the assembling of the, the model, putting all of that together. Um, so um, it feels for us like we're very much more kind of embedded um, in terms of the work that we're doing in terms of the sector. Um, and we were certainly very excited by the warmth in the room for the work that we uh, had been doing and that we intended to do. I think, um, you know, when you're talking about a narrative uh, that connects with um, people from underrepresented groups, um, that um, you need to remember that for those people, um, that narrative hasn't been far away from their heads from their minds uh, throughout their lives so the difference is is how people engage with that 
And, um, you know, I can say uh, a good few years down the line in my life and my career that um, it's been really amazing to see the warmth in the sector for the work that we've we've been doing. Um, so we were really pleased with the launch of our uh, organization a few months before our first podcast. And from there on, we kind of decided we would move forward and take on the world. And I think this is a great point for Sharice to kind of dis describe what that actually entails, what that meant. Uh <laughs> I think um, I think warmth in the room, love in the room, is a great um, is a great saying for for what has allowed us to progress. I think you know with what has happened and the culture that shifted within the music industry, um, certain uh, individuals' mindsets have changed, and people genuinely really want to not be a part of the old narrative, but create something new and you know, just don't don't want to be associated with what, how um, I would say black people have been treated in the past. I really do want to see a new a new world, despite what the powers that be in our government are trying to achieve. That being said, um, when I think about the organisations that we're working with, um, different organisations such as uh, that are in the world of sync that are orchestras and just the, the 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 fact they've opened their doors and they're creating opportunities and working with us to create programs to um, provide um, a, level, a level playing field in the music industry has been great. If I think about what's happened in the past year in, in, in terms of chronologically or a timeline, it's just been amazing. Um, we, part, we, this time, when we were last, or Roger was last on the show, we would have just, um, we would have just, just released our survey to the public. Yeah. And um, as a result, we it, it was the first of its kind. It was uh, a survey on the lived experience of Black musicians and industry professionals in the UK music industry. And we had over 2,000 respondents date we um, gathered the data for just under 2,000 respondents and that piece of research um, as I said first of its kind groundbreaking actually allowed us to uh, has opened more doors for us to be a voice for those musicians for those participants in the spaces where they usually wouldn't be so we conducted roundtables with the sector um, which included major record labels, um, majority of the orchestras, ABO, just literally everyone you could think of was there. It's like nearly 90 organisations. And wow. since then, we, we are now working in terms of um, rolling out some form of communication with over 120 organisations. But we, since then, we have partnered with, I think we have about 75 partners. I'm using a lot of numbers here, so I hope I'm not confusing people, but we have about 75 partners, but we are in regular communication with around 120. And these partners are the smallest of music festivals in the country to the largest of corporations such as Apple, Live AEG. And we have some really exciting work that we're planning for this year. Um, yeah, as we progress. So we're, we're only going, we're getting stronger and stronger and we're growing and expanding and 
and it's nice to see I was on a call this morning at how our work is directly affecting music and um, actual musicians themselves so we work within organizations but our desire is to actually make sure that our work benefits the individual and it's always nice to know that we do that so um without going into deal detail I'm going to now pass the baton to Roger or Katie. Uh, can I jump in there? Um, because um, Charisse obviously referred to the survey. The survey um, informed um, our research team um, as to um, the 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 um, the makings of a, re a report, a groundbreaking report. And um, for anyone who hasn't um, checked out the report go to our website, www.blim.org.uk, check it out. The, the uh, report's called Being Black in the UK Music Industry. Um, it's about the lived experience of black music uh, professionals and music creators. Um, some pretty heavy takeaways from there about pay and disparity, um, the plight of black women, um, the uh, aspects of uh, uh, mental health barriers to progression. Um, lots of key takeaways, um, including the, uh, the 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 implicit need of people of color to um, change their identity in some way to fit in. Um, also looking at um, the very high number of uh, people of color who have uh, been um, direct recipients of racism and um, and microaggression. Um, so these are real important things for people to check out. And I say that simply why because. Um, as a black person, this is this is my life. This is Sharice's life. Uh, we know that we've we've lived it. Um, I know when we first started talking about um, gathering data and producing a report, I personally was very skeptical about that. I was very cynical. Simply why? Because you only have to look on the TV and and um, check out, you know. Uh, the live performances of orchestras on on TV. You don't need a calculator to work out how many people of color, what diversity looks like. Um, but this report for me is uh, something that I'm I'm very proud of, and um, you know I have to commend Cherise publicly for sticking with this and and wanting to do it because the the engagement that it's had um, for me is way beyond anything that I could have imagined. Um, to to see organisations, um, you know, like the BBC and you know national organisations, international organisations, with global footprints, wanting to find out more about our work, our report, and how we can actually work together to make a better um, uh, ecology um, ecosystem uh, in the music sector is, you know, that's why this is very heartening. That's why it's very. Um, great to see the warmth in the room because you know for the first time certainly in my career um i feel like there is some kind of degree of of understanding some degree obviously no one can walk a mile in our in our own shoes but there's some degree of understanding for what it is about um to be a person of color um working in the music industry or to even have an aspiration to be in this industry in the united kingdom i would also say Sorry. No, go ahead. It's okay. I was just going to say that there's a, a real tension always with issues of diversity, of, mate, of, of feeling as though that the information and the data or the lived experience or the stories or however they're presented are, are everyone's to, to consume and understand rather than just for you will only understand this if you've lived it because I think that is um, 
I don't think I've put that quite right. I don't, what I don't mean that you would only understand it if you lived it. What I mean is that it's everyone's problem. And so anyone thinking that they might not read this report because it doesn't apply to them. Um, the same with, you know, I mean, I was weirdly, I was thinking about the film Turning Red um, and the reaction to that. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's a film about, um, it's effectively geared towards um, girls getting their periods. It's a Disney Pixar um, film. And it oh, had this right. huge this huge backlash of people being like, oh, I don't know, I watch a film about that. Uh, which, you know, <laughs> which is, um, which was the thing that I was reminded of when thinking about why people would... Um, would read this report if they didn't feel like it applied to them because actually we have to see these stories as, as for everyone and not absolutely, absolutely. you know when we did the report we already knew what it was going to say because our lived experience we just knew but yeah. we had to do it but there was something that came out of the report where I learned a little bit and one of the areas well one there was a few of the areas but one of the areas in particular and we're going to um, roll something out in roll a, a granular data report about it was actually the lived experience of black disabled musicians and we have I always say this you know if you're black if you're a woman and if you're disabled I can't even imagine the barriers that you face yeah. you know being a woman is one thing being a black woman is one thing being a black woman who's disabled and even as I say that I'm only mentioning three you know, if someone was um, a disabled person or identified as disabled, they'll tell you maybe there's six or seven um, layers to this. Yeah. And um, so we we felt it's really important to ensure that all voices are heard. And when it comes to um, disability and being a disabled musician, um, that is something where, you know, I don't think enough work or enough awareness has been made about that. So we'll be um, rolling out a report um, in the next, actually within the next, by September, I believe, in um, um, creating awareness on the issues that black disabled musicians and industry professionals face in the industry. And I think I'm hoping that that will be an eye opener as it was for me and mm. that other organisations will take note and create change for them and obviously also accessibility obviously and um opportunities because it's hard it's very hard for them it's very hard i i mean i was on a call yesterday just working out what this looks like with an organization called attitude is everything and you oh, know yeah. i was apologizing throughout the call i was like i don't have the right language i just i don't know what to say you know, the confidence wasn't there and yeah. we're doing some work with them to ensure that we <laughs> have the right language as um, they have the right language in, in regards to us. And that's what we're trying to do within the industry. We're trying to create a best practice. And for best practice, we have, we, as Black Lives Music, we have to work that out and make sure we are um, have that standard within our organisation as we go into other organisations to ensure that they are, um, you know, utilising best practice and um, working at a standard that um, will benefit the entire music industry as a whole, as well as the individual, you know. So we're working really hard. Um, with, we're, we're, we're working on our next pieces of research as well. So while research is on the table, we have um, two other pieces of research coming out um, next year. And, um, yeah, we are extremely busy in the area of research, but we know that research is powerful and it can help 
implement change. Absolutely. And um, can you tell us how you work with organisations then? So if, uh, for organisations listening to this who would like to work with Black Lives and Music, what does that look like? Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up that because um, uh, we do uh, uh, we work with a lot of um, organisations right across the ecosystem from grassroots up to professional organisations. So that looks like um, music hubs, music services, um, conservatoires, higher education institutions, uh, live event organisations, um, orchestras, professional performing uh, organisations, um, pretty much everyone that's in, in the ecosystem. Um, and, um, you know, we've alluded to it earlier on, we work with, um, you know, uh, it's about holding hands, moving forward together. Um, we operate as a critical friend for the organizations that we we work with, support them in day-to-day -day, uh, instances of behaviors, language, uh, cultures, uh, culture change, um, uh, systemic change within their own organizations, um, those kinds of sensitivities, um, but also, um, we work with providing resources to develop awareness. So, you know, we 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 love and prefer not to use the word train um, because we kind of leave and reserve that that word for for pets and um, sportsmen and women and um, and animals and and things that you train. Um, we shouldn't be training people what not to say. We shouldn't be um, training people uh, what not to think. Um, we should be internalizing a culture uh, of inclusivity that's really, really important. So we support with that um, as much as we can. And, and I think it's really important what you were, you were talking um, about there, because uh, earlier on in terms of, you know, the, the, the agenda of, um, you know, sort of periods and period poverty, because, you know, we know that period poverty hasn't been something um, you know, that's just dropped in uh, in the world in the last 10 years. This has been a thing forever, right? Um, yeah. Just like racism and, and all the other, you know, really, um, you know, uh, uh, heavy uh, agenda items that just simply don't get discussed by people because they're not prepared to walk um, even half a mile in our shoes to understand what that's about. So a lot of the work that we do with organizations is to try and bring that connection, that visceral connection, rather than um, uh, leave people on the outside um, disconnected and dispassionate about um, the issues of race it, uh, uh, and ethnicity in their organizations. Uh, and let's face it, it's easy, isn't it? I mean, if you're privileged enough to be, I mean, Sharice is talking about um, uh, lacking privilege in terms of being a, a black female uh, physically disabled person. But, you know, when you think about that uh, intersection of privilege of being, you know, a, a white male, um, able-bodied um, person, um, someone, you know, of a higher socioeconomic background, um, you can be as disconnected from everything in the world that uh, you, you might wish to be because um, none of that is going to impact on your life um, un unless you're prepared to open up in conversations. And, you know, conversations are a really, really important aspect of, uh, of social change and um, developing social conscience. Um, so, as I say, we, we don't chastise, we find ways of working with organizations to support them uh, as a critical friend um, and a working partner and working in collaboration. Um, and um, we're pretty proud to say that, um, you know, we're on an upward trajectory of the partners that we're working with. So we're hoping that stuff's, you know, going well and that we're doing, we're doing things right. 
in addition to that um uh working with partners and uh rolling out change we are working on an industry-wide code of conduct as well so um looking at the the just looking at our data we look we saw just areas where you know as uh, i believe that oh, sorry i should know these figures by heart but i've had them for in my head for over a year <laughs> so they kind of diluted but we're looking at 88 percent um of uh, black musicians believe that there's barriers to progression. Uh, 71% have um, experienced racial microaggressions. 67% have actually experienced racism directly. And as a result, we cannot, you know, see those, see those data, see that data, they see those stats and do nothing about it. And so we're working with a coalition of uh, music CEOs, um, of trade bodies, of organizations, of charities to roll out an anti-racism code of conduct and that will go live at within the last quarter of this year so maybe around October so we're really looking forward to that um, we want to ensure that um, those who participated in our research their voices were heard but just even if you didn't that it's time for change to happen now that shouldn't be happening you know the moral compost we have to change it and you know ensure that the music industry is a safe place to work where all musicians can thrive. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, so tell me about how do you feel progress is going? You know, like it sounds like the work that you're doing is really positive um, and you certainly speak about it very positively. Is the trajectory that we're on the right one? Mm, yeah, abs absolutely. And um we do speak about it very positively um, because the glass is always half full. You know, when you when you uh, when you look like us, when you uh, are from a protected characteristic, the glass always has to be half full because you have to get through life. You have to get up every day, uh, and every day has to be a success for you. Um, so, whilst um, we are not. Um, seeing a, a landscape and a world that has completely changed overnight we also have to manage our expectations and understand that that's not something that's going to happen overnight um this is the uh, product of where we where we are um or where we have been is the product of hundreds of years um of um oppression and discrimination and prejudice um that is something that has resulted in systemic uh, oppression um, and is, you know, as a result, is is just not going to change overnight. So um, when we talked last year, even if you'd asked me, I would say I'm not really sure about the direction of travel. But, um, you know, we're working with um, a fairly uh, representative snapshot of the industry now. And um, I would say, actually, yeah, I'm pretty confident about the direction of travel. Um, now we need to focus on the speed of travel. Um, and I think it's very much, uh, you know, there's still a lot of fear in the room. Um, when we talk about classical music, are we talking about either or in terms of repertoire? Are we talking about either or in terms of um, conductors and soloists? Or are we actually talking about and and? You know, are we talking about, you know, music that has not traditionally um, occupied the traditional um, canonic uh, repertoire in terms of Western classical music, um, occupying the same space as that as that as the music that we traditionally uh, recognize as being classical music. Um, there's fear for what does that mean about 
jobs so we, uh, uh, you know people you know traditionally occupying the space um effectively turkey's voting for christmas by supporting the work of black lives in music um of course we are not saying that people need to vacate we just need we're just saying that people need to make room um so it's very much about you know what um uh individuals are prepared to um to do in terms of their own reflective um actions um what does that mean in terms of organizations and cultural um in cultural change um as a result and that's not about taking bricks out of the the structure it's about delaminating the structure um bit by bit because we don't want to see buildings fall down um, we need them staying up we just need to make some change so i feel personally pretty confident in terms of the work that we do with our organizations that we all understand the direction of travel and even though they're i mean look let's face it i'm going to be a you know i'm well i'm not going to be controversial i'm just going to tell you like it is um sexism hasn't just kind of you know disappeared in a cloud of spoke spoke and nor has uh, racism so you know we know that there are there are sexist people we know there are ableist people we know there are racist people and that's part of the work that we have to do in in you know bringing on side and empowering those who are inclusive in their thinking um so that we marginalize those who are not uh, as mm -hmm. much as we possibly can yeah. i would i would totally agree with that i i mean i'm more practical on how it we do do that but um i think someone said to answer your question katie someone said you know we're seeing um we're seeing movement but we're not seeing change and you're seeing that in terms of what you um in terms of the industry why you know there was in what we just we're in festival season at the moment you know the lack of women that are headlining festivals societal in terms of even though it's not this country we're not that far off in america in terms of decisions that they're making in regards to women's rights in other words we're seeing movement we're seeing but we're not seeing change and in order to see change that needs to be tangible and some decisions need to be made and that's what we're trying to do we're trying to ensure that this wasn't a moment George Floyd was two years ago, and this is this is, wasn't a moment, and we're going to revert back to how it used to be, despite what the agenda of the powers that be might be. We're not. We're always going to be trying to keep the door open, keep the conversation going, and just like Roger said, mobilizing those who do want change, those organisations who do want change, those individuals that who who are in the place of making. Um, change within the music industry making it have an influence to mobilize them to do so and i'm just so glad that there's so many that's where, why you see us with the glass half half full there's so many brilliant people out there who really want to see this tide turn and see do want to see an equal music industry and it's just it's a privilege to stand side by side with them to work with them to make it happen very powerful for those of us who want that as well to have such leadership available for that as particularly when we're talking about changing um behaviors based on as you put it roger um centuries of of oppression and prejudice and we get things like the supreme court ruling overturning roe versus wade this week or last week um where the, some of the most powerful people in the world make decisions that are so 
far opposed to the things that everyone involved in anything like this wants to see happen. Mm. Um, it's just such I, an important voice to have. Yeah, I mean, I, I just I just wondered if I could come in on that, because I think the other the other side of this is, you know, obviously I'm not going to, you know, this is obviously a, um, we are talking about Black Lives in Music and the issue of race. But just 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 to dwell on the on the Roe versus Wade argument for a moment, you see, when you do when you get decisions like that, it actually sets things back and it doesn't just set things back in terms of. Uh, culture and understanding, but it sets things back in terms of the confidence of those individuals who are affected. And I think in the same way, when we talk about race um, and the issue of race in the music industry, we also have to understand that although some may say that we are pushing against an open door, we still need to push against that door. And because we don't necessarily yet have that confidence to push, we're not necessarily going to see that change um, as fast as some of you know us in organizations like, like Black Lives in Music would like to see because there are still people, you know, for example, if you have a you know um soft skills um uh, uh, capacity for uh, administration, why are you going to walk into a space that you're going to feel threatened in because you feel that you're going to be um, feel you're going to feel threatened in rather than um, a space that you feel comfortable in where your own culture and identity is is reflected. So there's a whole piece of work to do around um, marketing communications, hearts and minds, um, because I think I, I genuinely think and, and I think, you know, coming back to the orchestral sector, for example, particularly the small, uh, smaller ensembles, um, the chamber ensembles um, are more nimble um, in terms of ex executive decision making. And actually, I see some pretty big actions taking place with those uh, organizations. And certainly in terms of player recruitment, they're being pretty bold. Um, we've seen one particular orchestra that we've worked with um, take on 25 uh, musicians in the last year alone onto their extra list um, who are representing people of color um, in the industry. That is seismic. Um, we're not necessarily seeing that with with the the, the larger orchestras because there are, there's a different framework in place. There's a systemic framework in place that precludes the involvement um, traditionally uh, of those from from underrepresented groups. And there's more work to do as as a result. But I don't think that the desire is not necessarily there, and the integrity is not necessarily there. I think when you're looking at you know, let's go back to um, you know, very topical at the moment with some of the, the very interesting programs um, that have been going on with on the BBC. When we think about all the horrible stuff that has gone on historically in the United Kingdom, um, culminating in the race um, rights in 1981 and the, B um, the police deciding that they wanted to uh, be a more representative force, who is going to go and join them? You know, who who is a person of color? Who is going to do that? Mm. No one's going to do that. That takes time. You know, there needs a message to 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 change. Perception needs to change. Um, hearts and minds need to be one. And that doesn't happen overnight. So whilst those mechanisms can change, we also have to make sure that we bring people on board and give them the confidence, empower them um, to feel that they can push on that door. Because I think um, I, I'm fairly confident that for a large amount of these organizations, that door is open open yeah it, i think pushing on that door is an interesting analogy because it how easy it is to push on it really does depend on on the sort of circles you move in and what you hear and as someone who works in this sector all the time 
it does feel more open to me than or more easy to open to me than it than it did a year ago or than it did two or three years Absolutely. ago but I also see that I make I and others around me make conscious efforts to surround themselves with like-minded people and are able to find those people um, and it can feel very different if you don't have access to that um, that community that echo chamber whatever it is that um, that is is like-minded and positive and um, and supportive uh, the other kind of thing that I think impacts this and I'm particularly thinking of um, increasing diversity in programming which is um, a big issue at the moment is um, is the general security of the arts and the ability of people to be creative and flexible when um, you know restrictions in funding and restrictions in in other things because I have seen in my experience there was a push towards diversifying repertoire over the last year or two which certainly in larger organizations um, that do that present less that present larger scale works so therefore fewer works like opera houses and major orchestras that the problem that you have is that these organizations have um, had two years or thereabouts with no performances and problems like that and it's very easy to revert back to the known staples because they have to bring in money and they know you know they have figures they have data that says if you do as a complete example lab om or beethoven 9 you know what your audience is going to be like for that and the ability of arts organizations to take risks or work with repertoire that's less known to them and their audiences is impacted by that i think if that's something you see Katie, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm eager to take this one um, because, look, we've just spent two, two, two and a half years um, in lockdown um, or, you know, pandemic conditions, um, something that we no, no living person has seen um, in their memory prior to this. Um, what's come out of this? A new way of working, uh, a new way of living, a new way of socialising. Um, I think, you know, I hear what you say uh, about audiences, but hiding behind a business case is not going to get this done. Um, no. You know, and we see that happen. We, we see this. I've seen this time and time again. We can't do this because we need our audiences to come back. Where were the audiences in the first place before uh, the pandemic? Because it wasn't in an opening, uh, it, sorry, in an upward trajectory. It, it was, you know, we are looking at ever, an um, ever-decreasing circle of audiences um, now. Yeah, absolutely. It's an ever-decreasing circle of audiences. And it's not thinking of what your future audience will look like either, you know, or, um, you know, even safeguarding your financial bottom line for the future. If you're continuing to play the same works, over and over again how is your audience going to renew how are you going to increase your audience how are you going to diversify your audience if you are um not only just for your bottom line but you know even down to you know your arts council application how are you going to do that if you do not have a plan to um diversify your repertoire and that is where it starts almost one of the areas of where it starts if you're looking at your bottom line if you want to increase your audience if you want to increase your financial um outlook for the next 5 10 15 years 50 years you need to diversify the way you do things and how you do that is looking at your audiences and what they're into if you're going to be playing the same if you're going to be playing the same music for that same audience in 50 years time they're going to be dead 
your organisation will also die with them. I know that sounds really harsh, but it's just A, B, C, or one plus one equals two. You know, you really do need to diversify and look at what your future audience is going to look like. You, you have the data for that. In years to come, the, the UK does not, is not, we are the global majority. Let's just put it that way. It's not going to look the way it looks now. So what are you going to do about it? It's such a challenge. Um... I, I think I'm and I'm not I'm now I'm concerned that my question sounded overly sympathetic to the challenge. I mean, I'm sympathetic to the challenge in the sense no, that I, love that I can question. see how the I can see how that that way of thinking works. And especially for organizations that program six things a year and are panicking about the impact of one sixth of their impact. But I mean, I completely agree. And I do so much work with um festivals and smaller organizations that are more flexible that are able to to take risks like that more uh, and it's listen, yeah katie i'm going to jump in i mean it's yeah. not about taking risk it's no, it's about yeah. it, it's it's well, really take action then <laughs> yeah it's it's it, absolutely and uh you know i just want to say it's it's you know the 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 the, the line that has been taken um traditionally and since the pandemic is lazy um mm. arts marketing um is very very below par certainly in the united kingdom i i don't have you know sort of boots on the ground outside of the uk but marketing classical music um in the united kingdom is the laziest form of uh, marketing that that i can I, i've come across um people just look at something and say that that is going to sell or it is not going to sell they don't think about how they're going to sell and the job of the marketing department is to sell it's to promote um and to communicate and they have a job which i think is a challenge it's not about taking risk it's about who is who is driving who is the tail wagging the dog or you know is the dog wagging the tail is you know is the orchestra saying you know we really want to do this but we can't do this because marketing and i've seen this because i've worked with orchestras in the last couple of years that i've had to deal with this argument marketing department saying well we can't really sell this you know actually no you're not really trying to sell this so i think there it you know it it's about um you know getting some energy and not not being lazy about selling classical music Absolutely. you know classical music is so beautiful and listen i'm not speaking as an expert here if ever let me just say i'm more on the industry side this is it's such a beautiful genre and beautiful art form but it evolves and it has evolved there's no you know and we're not gradually, open yeah. you know <laughs> gradually so as an organization it's it's i agree with roger one wholeheartedly the word risk needs to be out of the equation yeah. it's not a risk you're just diversifying you are evolving you're being creative so if you put on six programs a year like right now in 2022 you know can one of those programs be a diverse program and then you increase it each year on year until the whole until your audience your local orchestra are used to seeing it enjoying it you're capturing data about it i mean it's just for me it's just normal it's just something that's just actually common sense not normal yeah. i'm gonna use and... it's, it's so it's a common sense it's not a risk and as roger said if that's your thinking then i have 100 you are absolutely being lazy about it if you can't think outside of that box 
I, oh, absolutely. And if you look at other art forms as well, I do say, and this is one of my attempts to be controversial that apparently isn't that controversial, that uh, classical music is one of the slowest evolving art forms that there is um, in terms of the the fact that it's so based on historical repertoire, um, which of course is all based on historical ideas and historical practices. Um, and it becomes less and less relevant to its audiences. Um, and is therefore, I, I, I often say this, is definitely at risk for its lack of ability to evolve. And if you look at, um, at other art forms, if you look at theater, um, for instance, or dance, and the way that that's evolved to take in diversity in such so much more of a uh, proactive way and with such incredible diversity of programming it doesn't seem to have had a negative impact on the performances of Shakespeare I have, that I have noticed you know I don't feel that we've lost anything there <laughs> no but I, th I think I think it added into that mix is is the tradition of um of uh of receiving classical music as a consumer yeah. um you know the you know you must know you, you must know you know that you can't you can't clap at the end of the third movement of a trike yeah, symphony yeah. but you can clap at the end of the third movement of a haydn symphony it's um and we've seen it i mean i've experienced it in in you know recent years where audiences um you know are are snarling and sniffing at people doing things that just do not conform with with tradition um, of classical music and I think that is a that there's a uniqueness about that in terms of of the genre that doesn't mm. necessarily impact on other art forms it's snobbiness and eliteness you know that's yeah. what we're talking about and um, we we're still pandering to the um, the needs of the uh, aristocratic elite, um, the social elite, uh, in terms of our audience, and we're really not prepared to think out of the box and think that you know people from a wider socioeconomic background could consume classical music, that it could be relevant to them. And what does that mean? It means the music will sound different. Um, it might be structured differently. It might have different sounds. It might have a completely different tonal palette than that that existed 400 years ago, and that we've repeated every day for the last you know sort of two three hundred years whatever it is um and as a result um we're slaves to tradition absolutely i feel like we could keep talking about this for a lot longer but <laughs> i mean look from from my point of view um the 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 main thing i i actually think that you hit the nail on the head with with the r word relevance i think when we sit there and we think about um when we think about relevance um that kind of fuels all of the change that needs to to happen relevance at governance level when you know we've got um you know we've done skills audits of of boards in classical music that's great and we're covered but do we have um a perspective uh, in there in terms of lived um, experience um, because that's how we're going to change audiences going forward having that representation when we think about relevance of you know the um, UK demographic now is that relevant right now or are orchestras relevant to 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 what UK the UK diversity looks like now my answer to that would be no when we think about the music the programming everything this is really for me um, what is an issue uh, in terms of 
making change. It's about really considering relevance on every level of what we do in our industry. Um, all of those things will go some way to being resolved and we can gain some confidence that we are really making progress. Thank you. It's been absolutely fantastic to speak to you both. Thank you so much for all the valuable information and eye-opening facts that you've shared with us today, Therese and Roger. The dimensional of the racial gap within the music industry is evident, but it's truly shocking to see this supported by numbers and data. Roger mentioned you don't need a calculator to see how many people of colour are in an orchestra. This is why I find it incredibly important that it's been formalised in the way that you've done with your report being black in the UK music industry. It's also really interesting to hear that the report as well as confirming the unequal working conditions for people of colour in the industry and how there is an implicit need for people of colour to change their identity to fit in, has led to new discoveries in areas that are less discussed, such as the trajectories, difficulties and obstacles faced by disabled black musicians. The report can be found on www.blim.org.uk, where you will also be able to find a new disabled black musicians report from September onwards. I agree with you that one of the key purposes of this report is to be able to open dialogue and collaborate with organisations and partners in order to join efforts in tackling this issue. It's George offering to learn that you are currently working with 120 organisations of which 75 are partners, including Apple and the BBC. It's really encouraging to hear that and that the roundtables conducted with these companies have had positive results and that they are receptive and eager to work together. We need to understand that racism and discrimination within the music industry affects all of us and not just the people of colour. This is the reason Black Lives in Music works heavily on building and nurturing the relationships with their partners and why you guys are also working on developing a wide code of conduct focusing on anti-racism and equality. Finally, we would like to close this episode by quoting Sharice. It is time for change to happen now. We're seeing movement, but we're not yet seeing change. The music industry should be a safe place to work for all musicians and change needs to be tangible. Once again, thank you so much for your time and efforts to improve our industry, Sharice and Roger. Thanks so much.